Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 120, and my guest today is Pratik Patel. Did, did I say that right? You did. Congrats for getting on the first try. <laughs> well, you know, having, having, having a slightly unusual name myself and, live, and having lived in various parts of the world, I'm particularly sensitive to how I might pronounce someone's name. Um, so... Um, Pratik, I'm going to have you um, introduce yourself first, actually, because I think it will become obvious as to the theme and topic that we're going to get into in this podcast. So, um, yeah, if you can just tell us, you know, who you are, what what you're up to, and uh, what you're currently, uh, what your interests currently are. Yeah, yeah. So, as you mentioned, name is Pratik Patel. I'm uh, currently in the states. You know, I'm the director of performance nutrition and assistant strength and conditioning coach for the uh, New York football Giants. So that's American football. And I've been fortunate enough to be in this position heading into my third season. We actually start our first in-season game this Sunday. So my main role is to oversee all the nutritional uh, aspects of everything the team pretty much eats and drinks as the team dietitian, you know, whenever they're with us during specified uh, organized scheduled you know, training sessions, whether it's the off-season training period, uh, heading into preseason training camp, and then in-season, as well as being a reference to the players to be able to reach out to during their downtimes because they get a decent amount of downtime depending on how far we progress in-season if we have the opportunity to make it to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also an assistant strength and conditioning coach. Um, so we've got a head strength coach who does all of our programming, and he has three assistants, and each one of us kind of also tackles a specific niche so one of them works more with um, the rehabilitation side working with all of our athletes that are clear to return to play that can be in the weight room another one manages all of our uh, data management you know our, our game loading our tracking that kind of uh, stuff and then I oversee everything nutrition related yeah it's, it's really uh, you have a great background and um, I, I share some of this with you insofar as I, I myself was a strength conditioning coach uh, for quite some time um, uh, before getting into being, you know, performance nutrition, becoming a performance nutritionist. Um, but the reason why I'm, I'm, you know, I asked you to come on to this uh, podcast um, and have this discussion we're going to have was because um, because I'm um, uh, historically been a strength and conditioning coach myself, and I'm a member of the National Strength and Conditioning Association and, and, and a CSCS myself, um, I read your article in in the NSCA Coach um, uh, recent article on opportunities and challenges in the current nutrition landscape of collegiate and professional football, and I, and I loved I loved the article for many reasons. One of which was you know, I've been in some of those sort of background positions as a practitioner for professional rugby uh, and football teams myself, albeit not the same thing as American football, but there's a lot of similarities in the team setting, particularly at the, you know, at the elite, at the elite spectrum, but also coming at it from the perspective of, of having the background that you've got as, as not just the sports nutritionist, the performance nutritionist, the sports RD, but also in your role as an assistant strength conditioning coach. And I love that because you, 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 you're, you're there not just to look after the nutritional needs, but you're there to also understand and play a role in their 
performance, their strength conditioning needs, which I think gives you a particularly unique perspective in understanding what your athletes needs are, um, which is uh, one of the things that I want to get into. And, and really my main, my main thing here is a lot of my podcasts um, have been very much about science, mechanistic stuff, everything from, you know, sort of sports nutrition um, in its various forms and related topics, uh, mechanistic topics, um, physiology, exercise physiology, exercise biochemistry, molecular biology, all sorts of stuff. Um, but really the main sort of my main interest here is taking that science and unpacking it into an applied context in a sort of very much a science to practice practice journey and this is where i want to flip it the other way and go you know what science is you know is obviously an important part of that process but practice is far more than just science and your article goes into this in quite some detail which i thought would be fascinating for our listeners many of whom are our existing practitioners uh, uh working in many different sports and team settings and or our uh, students uh, getting their degrees in sports nutrition or similar um, and or researchers. So I think it, however which way we look at it, I think this is valuable to get someone like you who's working for such an elite team, um, you know, is, is going to be uh, hopefully an awesome, awesome uh, conversation. So um, tell us, Pratik, so firstly, how, I mean, why, why did you feel that you wanted to write this article and how did that come about? Yeah, and I'm actually, you know, I'm very uh, glad that you were able to read it. Sometimes, you know, we spend months writing some of these articles, doing the research, reading hundreds and hundreds of research papers and putting things together, and we don't know, you know, what <laughs> the audience yeah. thinks about it. And I'm like, did anybody even like it? Did I go through, you know, six, seven months for nothing? But, you know, I appreciate it. And yeah. obviously now, I'm, you know, it's kind of validated for having done so and making me even more motivated to continue to contribute back. Please but do. yeah. You know, you know, this came about because a a colleague and friend of mine, person I worked for and with at Michigan State, uh, Joey Eisenman. I don't know if you're familiar with. Oh, I name. know Joey. Yeah, if you listen, yeah. Joey, Joey listens to this podcast. Hey, Joey. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've known Joey since 2012 when I got my uh, first full-time role working at Michigan State, and he, you know, he's been doing a lot of great things around the country, not only with you know youth sport athlete and development, but also, mm. you know, working at the high school level and and beyond. And he approached me knowing that he was going to be one of the main co-authors of the NSCA coach article, which was focusing on American football. Mm. And they wanted a nutrition section because obviously you want to make sure it's as holistic as possible. And nutrition's, you know, garnered a lot of support over the past five, 10 years, you know, not only worldwide, but especially in American sport and even more so in, in football, you know, at the collegiate and professional level. And he reached out to me and said, you know, are you, is this something that you might want to do? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to help contribute back to the field. And I wasn't a hundred percent sure exactly what to write about because, you know, you say, Hey, you're going to write an article about nutrition for football. I'm like, all right, well, there's a thousand things you can write upon, you know, could sure. I go into, you know, pre-training strategies on the field, injury recovery, hydration, X, Y, and Z. And I think a lot of that stuff has already been put out there from different outlets, such as Gatorade and a lot of other research, mm. um, institutions but I thought no one's really written about you know what is life like for practitioners that are either full-time or consulting at a, a pretty decent rate with teams at the collegiate and professional level and giving them some insight of you know this is what exactly life is like how has it changed over the past five ten years you know what are some of the things that have been successes what are some of the challenges and as I started thinking more and more about it I think well if 
you know, I can kind of set the stage for writing about this. Maybe it can open the door for contributing back to the NSCA for future articles to say, all right, we've kind of developed this broad uh, basis and foundation. Now we can stack it and go a little bit more in depth with some different topics instead of just jumping straight into something like, you know, creatine or caffeine or supplements or hydration without having, you know, introduced you know, what's going on with teams and athletes at this level. Well, I, I mean, no, that's an awesome start to this conversation and I'm super excited now about having this chat because I feel so strongly about, you know, the, the problem that we have in the development of, of, of our field of sports nutrition and, and the practitioners, the emphasis is heavily favored towards just the science. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, okay, just the science. It's not like it's not important. Of course, it's important, but it's a very sobering experience for a practitioner who's spent all those years acquiring their degree and, you know, passing all their exams and writing their thesis and, you know, maybe doing their MSCs or PhDs. And then they end up in, in the real world, as I like to call it, um, where theory is rarely articulated, um, you know, as per the textbook. And you find yourself in a very interesting scenario. Um, so you start your article off, actually, um, with describing the current landscape. And I love that phraseology. You know, I, I, I often talk about as a practitioner, we, you know, we exist, particularly in a team setting, in a community of practice where it's not just the nutritionist or the S&C coach or, you know, the, 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 even the players. You know, we're, we're all part of a community and, and just like in any community, everyone plays a different role. There are different languages that we speak, um, not just literally, you know, being in a, particularly in, in European sports in particular i don't know what it's like in american football but like in in football in soccer uh and rugby to a certain extent um you know we have people that literally speak different languages and or um don't speak you know your language and have very different cultures and and so on um but likewise every single member of that team has a different perspective a different mindset a different approach a different a different bias um, and different sports have hugely varying levels of funding resources, but also belief in sports science, I guess, because I was based in the U S as, as we were discussing for about 10 years before I came back to the UK. And I did find it a bit of a shock, although sports science, sports nutrition is, is very advanced here in the UK, for example, the, the implementation of that in the professional sports setting is not necessarily at the same level. And by that, I mean, it's very common for professional football teams, soccer teams to have extremely part-time practitioners. Some of the Premier League teams don't even have sports nutritionists, if you can believe that. Um, So I look at what you guys are doing, and at least in American football, you seem to have a very serious and structured approach. So maybe let's start there then, um, and we'll have more of you talking now. Uh, you, you start off talking about the current landscape. Not everyone's going to be familiar with American football because this is a very global audience. You, maybe you can give us an idea of where we're at and your environment, and, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, I'd say you know the, the main reason we've seen such growth in the field from a sports dietetic, sports nutrition 
standpoint has really started at the collegiate level where you have hundreds and hundreds of colleges and universities across the country and many of them, you know, in these larger divisions, we call them, you know, the football bowl subdivision in power five schools because you have five major conferences. Each one has between 10 to 14 different schools and each school has, you know, most of the major sports and usually football, basketball, women's basketball, volleyball, hockey, baseball, these are the ones that are some of what we call the revenue generating sports, which means they bring in a decent amount of money, especially football, which, you know, because of the TV contracts, the conference uh, deals that are made, you know, the amount of money teams can get for games. And some of these college football teams are bringing in millions and millions of dollars, which college usually, teams are bringing in millions. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, it's funny. Uh, it, I used to work at the university of Oregon before I took this position and they were talking about, uh, how much teams are getting paid to play some of these neutral site games in a neutral site is where, you know, both teams play in a different state or a different stadium, not on their own home turf. So they call it a neutral site. And uh, Oregon played Auburn, a really, really great game and had the highest ratings over all of the games within this past first weekend of the first college football games. And each team was going to get, I think it was, you know, 2.5 million or 6.5 million, something along the lines to play this game. And that's just because of, you know, the TV shares, the deals that are made, and they agree on these games years in advance. So, you know, football brings in almost 80% of the revenue that's generated for an athletic department. And, you know, nowadays, each team is trying to get a leg up on another, whether it's we have to bring in the best players because they've looked at the studies. You know, the highest rated recruits are the ones that have a correlation between total number of wins in a season. So, you know, if you have a good coach, good recruiting year and then they're able to bring in a decent recruiting class year after year after year and it equates to wins and that's going to mean that this coach is going to be able to keep his job and the boosters are happy the the ad is happy and the fans are happy as long as the team is winning so what we've kind of pointed to is if you want your team to win you got to make sure you have the right players you got to have the right the coaches how do you attract these players well you have hotbeds across the country in the United States, which have seemingly the greatest amount of talent, the best athletes in the country in California, Texas, Florida, and then some other states. So that's where they're doing the majority of the recruiting to get these players. Now they get rated from, you know, three stars, four stars, five stars, and every school wants their hands at these kids where kids are given X number of, you know, official recruiting visits to colleges. So they roll out the red carpet. They show that they have the greatest facilities, the best locker rooms, the best football operations building, you know, with the flashiest jerseys, the best gear for the students to utilize. You know, they live in the best places on campus. They're given the best quality healthcare trainers, the best strength coaches, you know, the best nutritionists. They have access to all these meals and X, Y, and Z. So they're really trying to get these these student athletes to come play for them because they know that the better players they get, the better opportunity they have to win games and the better opportunity they have to keep their jobs. So that's, you know, kind of where we're at in the NCAA where you know, you have to do as much as possible to one-up your competition because if Alabama has this, then Auburn and LSU want this. If Oregon has this, then yeah. USC and Washington want that. So it's kind of, you know, you know, Clemson has this, then, you know, whoever needs to be better than that. So, so they're all, everyone's trying to one-up each other. Yeah, well, one in, so that's a great way to say it. You know, you're trying to get the edge, right? Um, 
And across the board in elite sport, they use terminology um, like marginal gains, for example. You may have heard that. I don't know if it's more of a Mm -hmm. European thing, but, you know, trying to get one up. So obviously there's big money involved in that sport, but there is, there is in, in football, in uh, soccer, you know, there's lots of money in that. Um, Not so much in rugby, although it's not insignificant. Um, But at the end of the day, what, what we're looking at obviously is, is, is doing whatever you can to, to win the game using, for example, strategies and professionals and so on that, that obviously gets the best out of your athletes um, which we'll, we'll we'll get into that topic more because I'd love to hear your your insight and perspectives on that. Um, but of, but also you would imagine that there's a fair amount of thought and attention to making sure that the you know the wrong things aren't being done. You're you 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 you're really paying a lot of attention, aren't you? Um, it, I mean, how much of a machine is that in terms of? I think from a more corporate perspective, you'd have you know, people who specialize in efficiency. Um, you have all sorts of departments that's all about getting, you know, looking after your investments, so to speak, um, achieving goals, i.e. making money or whatever. Um, for you guys, you know, you've got expensive players. Uh, there's a lot of money involved in winning games, as you've described, or even just playing games and televised, uh, uh, you know, televised um uh, games even at the university level which is mind-boggling to us at least uh, over here um i mean what, what i mean what in terms of the size of the machine you know how many how many people do you typically find a, in that community of practice then uh, if we just talk about that so you apart from the coaches and so on i mean how many people like you or broadly related to sort of health and performance side of things do you typically have in that environment well, uh, there are, uh, I think at both levels, collegiate and professional, there are dozens and dozens. So if you're looking at just specific departments, mm. and there's obviously going to be a lot of overlap at the college and professional level. You have, you know, your strength and conditioning department, you have your athletic medicine department, a sports nutrition department, a sports science department, uh, sports psychology, which kind of usually funnels in with the athletic medicine team, and then the whole gamut of doctors, whether they're you have an in-house team position, which some collegiate universities have either one or two full-time or some will have, you know, one plus they'll contract out with a couple others. And then even along those lines, you'll have your specific specialties. You'll have, you know, foot doctor, you'll have ortho, you'll have surgeon, you'll have, you know, brain specialist neurologist and everything under the sun that, you know, the medical staff can have access to. And then on the flip side with the, the collegiate players, you know, you'll have your academic staff because everybody who's involved with making sure that they are progressing towards their degree, they have all the academic help they need in terms of tutors, study hours, making sure that they're maintaining an appropriate GPA to stay eligible to become mm. a student athlete. You know, you have your all of your athletic directors that are in charge of, you know, different teams and different specialties, whether it's fundraising, whether it's, you know, your senior, senior women's athletic administrator, uh, your head athletic department, AD, athletic director, and then, you know, your equipment staff, the video staff, uh, the food service staff. I mean, I mean, that just doesn't even go over the coaches or any of the interns or scouting yeah. people. You've got, Oh man, just, my head's spinning. Just snowball. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> then, and then great. on the professional side, 
yeah. you know, you throw in, you've got your PR people, community service, your production video, because not only, you know, are they required to perform on the field, but, you know, there are some responsibilities out there in the community that we want to make sure that the players are participating in. Although they don't have to worry about the academic part of it because, you know, they've either graduated or they aren't thinking about worrying about school anymore. But there's still plenty of people that are trying to get their hands on them every single day. So, I mean, that, okay, yeah, I mean, that that's big. Um, I, as for you, because we'll focus on particularly on the role of the of the sports nutritionist, sports RD, you know, is there one typically within that setting or is there going to be, um, you know, like a, a senior a nutritionist with assistant nutritionist? What's the typical setup with that? Yeah, at, at the professional level, and I'll speak more towards the uh, NFL and National Football League, you usually have just what, what's become more common now is I think 24 or 25 out of the 32 teams have a full-time sports dietitian, so somebody that has had experience working in a sports setting and athletes, whether it be predominantly football or team sports in general, and then the language in the collective bargaining agreement that the NFL Players Union and the owners put together back when they put the CBA uh, is that the teams must also provide whether it's access to a consultant nutritionist or a licensed nutritionist dietitian. So it could be a consultant if they don't have anybody full time. So you don't usually see more than one person at the professional level because you're only dealing with one team, one sport. Now at the college level, you might have anywhere from 23 to legitimately 39 different sports. So one person can't handle all of that. So you're going to have to have whether somebody in charge of the department as the director, and then they'll have a staff of anywhere from, you know, one to up to five or six. And each person has their own specific team designations. That way you can kind of divide and conquer instead of everybody just worrying about one sport because every athlete needs to make sure that they get time and attention and they're able to get access to the appropriate knowledge and language and resources. So it sounds to me, you know, I mean, this is taken pretty seriously then. So sports nutrition is, has a firm place at the table when it comes to the provision of support to athletes at the collegiate and, um, at, for example, in your environment at the NFL level, right? Yeah, yeah, because again, you're talking about, you know, we're looking at it from a health and performance standpoint, but there's also the food service aspect of it because, you know, there were some rules and regulations that were passed within the past, you know, three or four years that have allowed universities to really be able to invest and spend and provide more access to meals and snacks and resources in terms of, you know, appropriate calories for their athletes. And it wasn't like that before where they had very strict rules on, you know, what you could provide outside of one single meal and everything else has to be taken care of by the athlete, which, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but sometimes, you know, these larger organizations have rules in place, which you know, we have to abide by them, even though we don't agree with them. Sure. So you're talking about nowadays, you might have a overall food service budget in terms of, you know, meals and labor that could be, you know, 1 million, 2 million, maybe even $3 million. Wow. Wow. And you as the performance nutritionist, presumably you're playing a role in 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 how that budget is both set and and used is that right is that something is that something you play a role in yeah yeah so you know luckily in our situation here we have 
a very great space in our facility. So we have a full kitchen, a full dining area, full serving area, and we have a contract group that has accounts with six or seven other NFL teams, and they do a phenomenal job. And I'm very fortunate to get a chance to work with, you know, our head chef and his staff. They work really hard. They make really good food. They're very open to learning about what the player needs are. We try to individualize things as much as possible. You know, I'll work with him on putting together the menus, but obviously because of all the responsibilities, you know, I don't want to be the one to sit in front of a computer and think about, you know, let's put together two in the next two or three weeks because that can sure. take a decent amount of time. And I've done that in the past, but with, you know, having that confidence to be able to provide just recommendations to our chef to say, all right, these are the guidelines for these particular days based on what the training status is and what the temperature is like, you know, so, what the team is going through. So are the chefs, do they tend to be more, um, what is an emerging sort of profession here in the UK is the performance chef. Is that what you have now is that they're not just chefs. They, they are particularly well, um, you know, the experience or trained or they have the, the mindset of, of producing food specifically in that environment with an awareness of, or, or an integration with, with, with the RD, for example, is that, is that how it works? Yeah. I think these chefs now are becoming very much more aware of the needs of what a modern day athlete needs. So it's not just making comfort food that they know the players like, but it's understanding that, you know, we need to have certain things available at all meals because, you know, for the health and performance reasons for the athletes and recovery as well, but also these are the reasons why, but also letting them use their creativity and their, you know, knowledge and background, because obviously they're way better than I am and will ever be in the kitchen. And they have a mindset of being able to bring a different point of view to putting together meals. And that's why I like really working with them. Sure. Uh, I think nowadays you have a lot of chefs that are very much more health conscious and very much more up to speed with, you know, some of the basics of performance nutrition. And luckily they're very open and willing. I'll do some in services with them mm. at different times during the year to kind of teach them about, you know, this is my thought process for what I think we can uh, improve upon or different things we want to bring to the table. And they've been very open and honest. And, you know, I'm not going to be around, when a player needs me. So if we're lifting in the weight room and I'm in charge of a specific position group and the previous group is done and they're going in the kitchen, you know, I want to make yeah. sure that everybody in the kitchen has that confidence to be able to answer questions instead of defaulting to me. Yeah. I've, I found the same in my own experiences that my, my relationship, probably the most important relationship I would have, or one of the two would always be with the chef. Uh, and it is amazing what they're capable of, uh, particularly with troubleshooting. Like, like for example, I was, you know, last year I was at the World Cup, lots of countries, but ultimately in Russia, and, and all sorts of issues occur where, you know, what you're expecting isn't in the hotels where you're traveling, or, you know, the, the timings, or, or there's deliberate, you know, the, the host country isn't necessarily... <laughs> playing game with you by deliberately making sure that foods aren't available to to rock the boat so to speak and the chef they can still get around it it's awesome um so in terms of uh, the significance of nutrition within the club setting even within your in the you know in in your number of years of experience are you have you seen that gone from um, you know, having a moderate level of buy-in by by the by the team, by the club, by the owner uh, or owners, uh, to what is I guess one could describe a, a, a steep linear increase of of 
uh, buy-in or I mean, how would you describe the, 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 the evolution of, of, of that? I would say, yeah, you know, when I first started out, you know, I was just trying to get my feet wet working with athletes. So I was working through a strength coach and a men's basketball team. And he was just kind of pointing out certain players that he needed a little bit more attention with. So we're meeting with them one-on-one doing assessments, providing education, X, Y, and Z. And that's when I realized that, you know, you can spend all the time you want with an athlete, but together the best plans, they're going to nod their heads at you. And the second they walk out the door, they're going to completely forget about everything that you just went over because they're going to go back into their own zone. So starting out kind of in that, you know, contract role and understanding what player behavior is and what are the knowledge deficits, what are the barricades and blocks for them to understanding the information that you're trying to teach them. And I think the more that dietitians have been able to be around athletes, be around clubs and identify problems, because I think it's a lot of what we do is we're problem solvers. We see something that, you know, may or may not be right. We try to come up with solutions. We implement them, you know, assess the outcome. Was it positive? Was it negative? What needs to be reassessed? And then try it again. And that's a lot of it has to do with just understanding what what are the pitfalls for these athletes? What are they not doing right? Why are they not doing it right? How can we come up with solutions for them? So if you only see an athlete one time a week or two times a week, one, you're not able to develop a good amount of trust and buy-in because they don't feel as comfortable as they would with an SNC or an ATC that they see every single day or their position coach or head coach that they see every single day. So I think the more that I've been able to be around teams going from a consultant to being, you know, almost three quarter to full time with the team to, you know, having a director role, the putting together programs from scratch or readjusting programs and being able to be the focal point to see what are the different things that are going wrong in different areas. You know, looking at it from a strength and conditioning perspective, looking at it from a medical perspective. Mm. I think that's why we've seen a lot of these linear increases with the responsibilities that are now on the plate of dietitians are that they had kind of worked their way in and proverbially kicked down the door to make sure that they had a seat at the table instead of being you know, looked at as a consultant who's only there one to twice a week, and then who has to take care of all of those objectives or the jobs and duties when they're not there. Yeah, that's where you get a lot of disconnect because, you know, if only, someone's only there two times a week, and then the strength coach has to take care of it, and then the ATC or, or some of it both, and then you have to travel on the road and put together the same kind of thought process. So a lot of the communication sometimes gets lost along the way. Yeah, it's so I think one of the it's interesting you mentioned that we we i mean one of the reasons why i know joey eisenman is because i've interviewed him on this podcast before and we got into uh, an article that he did at the time which was for the acsm um you know all about translational blocks and issues uh partly because my own my own doctoral research is in evidence-based practice in sports nutrition so this is you know we're all we're all interested in the same thing here and i think that that's what you're talking about is particularly important because a skill set of not just a practitioner, but an effective practitioner is awareness of this, which is why, you know, what you're saying, I think will be particularly valuable to many of the listeners who have aspirations to be practitioners, particularly in a team setting is understanding just how many things can get in the way and how many problems there are. I think, you know, let's get into that then. So, so, you know, being a performance nutritionist, a sports RD, isn't just about creating nutrition plans um, that magically 
just slot into um, an athlete's daily schedule, you know, like magic. There's a lot of responsibilities and roles that you play. Maybe you could just give us an idea in the context of an, of an NFL uh, performance nutritionist. What are the sorts of responsibilities you have in a typical week? I mean, what are all the different things that you're doing? If, if I mean, I know that could be a huge huge topic but, but maybe if you could summarize it just to give us a, a window into your life in your you know in your daily practice there yeah usually just arriving early in the morning at the facility and kind of just getting all of our different areas laid out with where the players are going to be so making sure that you know pre-lift post-lift fluids and snack hydration items electrolyte packets are available within his arm reach to the players at the different locations that they're going to be you know, frequenting, whether it's in the locker room, in the weight room, outside the meeting rooms, you know, communicating with our chef just to make sure both him and I are both on the same page, uh, meeting with, you know, our standard conditioning staff if we have a, a scheduled lift that day and getting a chance to talk about our who has specific responsibilities, and then meeting with our medical staff to go over, you know, the injury report to see if, you know, anything has changed from the previous one. Is there anybody new? What's going on with you know, rehab, return to play, is there anything I can do for those athletes, you know, based on, you know, obviously that's implementing the science and the practice. Mm. And then, you know, we start our day, we'll have the lift, guys will finish, go to meetings, you know, we'll kind of talk about what happened with the lift. Is there anything we need to address? You know, I'll be on the same page with the medical staff too about the practice field setup, you know, because there are different times of the year when we have interns, you know, medical interns and conditioning interns. And then as we get into the season, we actually lose most of them. So we have to take all those extra responsibilities that we were able to delegate to the interns upon ourselves. So that means we have to be extra vigilant and, and extra proactive about everything that we do. Uh, so then, you know, when guys are out of the meetings, they have a short amount of time to legitimately get tapes, stretch, put on all their gear, you know, hydrate, get extra carbohydrates in any, whatever, you know, pre-workout powders and caffeine and anything that the guys bring in that they want to take. And then I might be passing out, you know, Skeleton shots, collagen shots, you know, reinforcing habits for some of our sickle cell players or guys that I know that sometimes aren't the most proactive about their nutrition and hydration habits and understanding that we now that we don't have a full roster of 90, we've cut it down to our 53-man roster and a 10-player practice squad. All of these players are now going to get significant reps because we don't have any of those additional players to eat up reps for them to get rest. Sure. So making sure that guys are – hitting into practice as well prepared for the demands of practice. And so when we get to practice, you know, depending on what the script looks like, identifying those opportunities to make sure that, you know, we're doing additional hydration, throwing in extra electrolytes, additional carbohydrate options for them based on, you know, who likes what, because every player wants something different. You know, some can handle all the Gatorade products and chews and primes and others want Skittles and candy and somewhat fruit and X, Y, and Z. So, you know, we try to, uh, make sure we have everybody taken care of. And then when we finish practice, we might have an additional list to take care of all the other players that weren't scheduled. And that's when we kind of just make sure that we go over what happened on the field. I've got all the recovery options available for them in the locker room because it's a central location for them to grab everything instead of just doing a setup outside on the field because the players don't want to be on the field any longer than they have to. Although it's very different from team to team and that's what the practitioner has to realize and put that together. And then, you know, doing any informal follow-ups with any specific players that I need to, 
and then, you know, we've got a meal served. So going down in the kitchen and just continuing to talk to them, you know, whether it's going over, uh, you know, if we have weight concerns on players, continue to make sure that they understand what they need to do, you know, tell them the kitchen about, you know, packing up individual meals for the players to grab for dinner, uh, talking about, you know, any biomarker results that, you know, we're able to get on the players and making sure that they're staying on top of, you know, taking their fish oil, vitamin D, X, Y, and Z, anything to address any corrections. Um, usually the players are out of the building after their evening uh, meetings, which in season is generally around, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock. So they have the rest of the day off. And that's when you kind of do an assessment of the day and figure out what's going on, place any orders for any of our products coming in, stock certain areas, uh, go over, you know, our, our travel trip since we're going to be away this weekend, make sure everything's right with the charter. You know, we have the appropriate pre-departure stuff, everything's set with the menus. Uh, we have our post-game options set up and we know where it's going to be talking to the hotel, make sure they have everything set for the meals based on what the schedule is. And whenever we kick off, that's going to dictate how many meals we serve to them on game day and just start packing because we pack, you know, a few trunks that we take with us on the road. One goes to the hotel, one goes directly to the stadium. So that's our pregame and halftime stuff. And then I also unload stuff at the hotel that's ready for the evening before the game snack and then things that we provide to the players on game day. So it's just, you know, trying to stay on top of all this different stuff and then also continuing to, you know, do research, try to come up with solutions to problems that athletes are having. You know, Mm. unfortunately, you know, unlike the collegiate setting where you can do all these assessments and monitors on the players and they really don't know any better and you can kind of force it on them because, you know, they're kids and they're in the building for eight hours a day. You know, we only have the guys for a certain amount of time and we can't make things mandatory. So if they don't want to fill out a, a wellness questionnaire or do a sleep survey or wear this wearable, then they're not going to do it. And a lot of the guys actually don't want to do it because it's just another thing that we're asking them to do. And if they don't see an additional benefit from it, they're not going to want to do it. So the only way around that is to kind of just pick and choose different players based on, you know, what does the workload data look like? Is there a certain spike anywhere? Or do we anticipate somebody getting additional time out on the field and making sure that, you know, they're recovering properly. So they're fresh for the game. They're hydrating properly. They're taking an ample carbohydrate leading to the game. So it's kind of just, an ongoing process where we kind of have to pick and choose and figure out who do I need to talk to today? Who do I need to talk to tomorrow? And we're also bringing in free agents nonstop because our roster isn't set in stone. You know, it's a, it's a living document, so to speak. And our GM and head coach, they're going to bring in the best players that are available to make sure that we have the best team to field. So if there's somebody out there that's available, that might be better than, what we have, then, you know, that's the GM's job to make sure that we bring those players in. So we'll bring them in, do a physical, they'll work out. And then we might have a brand new player who we know nothing about who's going to be going directly to a two hour practice. And we don't know, you know, has he eaten? Has he hydrated? You know, does he have any previous history of injury, any movement deficiencies? So a lot of this stuff we just take in stride. Amazing. I mean, it, it, look, it's obvious that that is not only a full time seven days a week job it's almost too much just for one person and as i said earlier it's mind-boggling but in a lot of professional team settings around the world the you know the sports nutritionist is frequently a part-timer um which is one reason why you know i'm enjoying this conversation because it's a great exemplar of how 
this probably should, well, not probably this, how this should be done and how it should be taken seriously as an investment in your, in your athletes. Um, a lot of people are working very hard, aren't they? In terms of their training, um, you know, the use of sports science and strength conditioning, all that money in all those facilities, you know, how could you not take it seriously from a nutrition perspective, which you clearly, you clearly are in that context. Um, but how about this issue? This is something that, uh, uh, that I think many of us as practitioners and team settings have to deal with. You've mentioned some of the players who maybe don't buy into things, and we can talk about some of the strategies you, you use to get around that, but the inevitable impact of social media and the internet and somebody's buddy at the gym or their girlfriend or whatever, <laughs> you know, getting into fads and, and so on, how, you know, how significant of an issue is that in, in, in that environment, I should imagine it's obviously there cause it's everywhere. I mean, how, how prevalent is that? Yeah, it, it is pretty prevalent and it really depends on, you know, the players cause a lot of them will be very interested in seeing like what's new out there that they can do to implement that might give them an edge, might make them feel a little bit more, recovered or you know healthier faster better or stronger or what have you mm-hmm. and you know you and i know there's any and everything at their fingertips and most all of it is you know bs for the most yep. of the part yep. you know sensationalized by the media and your you know your twitter nutrition experts and instagram you know fit famous people but i think the good thing is when you're in a situation where you have a, a staff a medical staff a strength staff a nutrition staff that's been at a place for a good amount of time and has a really nice an integrated and very supportive, you know, department and structure and plan put in place, then it's easy to get buy-in from the athletes, especially if they've been to a place where they haven't had such a very structured and regimented strength and conditioning program. They haven't had a very thorough workup, you know, from their medical assessment side, or they haven't had really good access to resources from the nutrition and hydration aspect. But again, you're going to get varying levels of buy-in depending on you know who you're talking to you know our rookies it's easier to mold them because a lot of them have come from colleges and universities that have invested heavily in performance and nutrition and snc and sports science and you know medicine mm. where a lot of this stuff is, is isn't new to them now right. you know granted a lot of the stuff that's been taught to them about just general sports nutrition concepts whether it's you know very easy to recognize or something a little bit more in depth you know they'll forget about it because they are who they are. You know, some are good and they're, you, you know, we don't have to keep tabs on them, but some we just need to constantly remind, like you've been told this stuff over and over again. We're going to have to keep teaching it to you over and over again. It's the same thing with how they act in the weight room. You've shown them a movement over and over again, and then they see it on their card. They ask, what is this? Mm-hmm. So that's just the, the nature of the job. Um, I think, you know, it's easier to mold those rookies because once they're in the system, they don't know any better. They haven't been to any other teams. You know, you introduce it to them right off the bat and you set the expectation and, most of the ones that I came in my first year with have been very easy to work with and they know what's expected. They know what we have to offer and they know how to follow through and comply. It's difficult when you're working with, you know, certain players that have made a lot of money. They've you know been successful. They might not be, you know, the greatest poster child for a rookie to, you know, yeah. abide by because they've gotten by by skills. So they're a little bit harder to crack. And sometimes, you know, it takes a little bit of time. You don't want to approach them directly to say, Hey, I know who you are. Let me help you. I can do this, 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 and this for you. And they look at you like I've made millions of dollars and I don't know who you are. Get out of my face. Yeah. So I think that's one important thing that 
young practitioners need to realize, and I made this mistake early in my career, you know, when we learn the science of it, we understand the importance of hydration and nutrition and what it can do for athletes. And maybe we've experienced this in our lives by, you know, changing up our habits and, you know, improved strength or body composition or just general wellness that, you know, we're not going to change the world and we're not going to alter a team and be the reason why a team wins or loses. The understanding is we're a very important piece of the, large puzzle you know yeah. it's not that not that we're not important but we can't overestimate the importance of it and i came in you know early in my career thinking oh my god you know we're going to do this business the athletes we're going to feed them they're going to hydrate they're going to feel so good we're going to win games and it just doesn't happen like that sure oh, so well we've all seen bit. like you say we've all seen those you know the ultimate athlete um you know winning all the medals making all the money and you and i both know they eat crap <laughs> It's so depressing. It's, it's true. It's like, yeah. nutrition obviously means nothing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about, uh, so I have found in, in my own experiences that, you know, the identification of influencers um, has been important in my own implementation of, 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 you know, my nutrition recommendations and buy-in and so on. And there's been two types of influencers. You pointed out one that is not necessarily a good influencer, someone who's highly influential by virtue of their, you know, their successes, but is not necessarily a good poster child for reasons that you've explained. But there are players within the team setting that other players look to who like, who they get on with, who are good poster child, child children for our work. They're the good marketing tools. Do, do you find that that's something that you have found of use? Um, is that something you recommend that maybe younger practitioners getting into a team setting, you know, you know, you, we, you know, just how the players, they're all friends, they're all buddies. They, they can almost gang up on you if you're not careful. You know, you can be the, the joker to them. They can play games on you. But what sort of, strategies or approaches have you have you used yourself to fit into the team so that you yourself are the influencer yeah no you're absolutely right you know i'll I'll use some of our not necessarily oldest players but some of our more like players players that are more high profile to be able to influence some of the other in the locker room and it really i think it really depends true truly on the dynamic you have in the locker room as well you know my first year here there were high expectations and unfortunately we didn't meet them. There probably wasn't as much connectedness in the locker room. And that, you know, showed with what our record was. Unfortunately, our head coach and GM were let go and uh, we were retained, which was good and brought in a new GM, new head coach. And they've transformed the culture in the locker room to where these guys all get along with each other, whether it's offense, defense, different position groups, all melding together. So that makes it easier to address one player who, you know, is very bought in and takes care of their body really well, has seen the benefits of it, has had success in the NFL or is, has a good story to where, you know, could be a, a player that went undrafted, signed as a free agent, bounced around to a few teams, ended up working really hard, you know, bought in to really taking care of their body, doing as much as they can to get an edge. And then seeing those results and being like, hey, you know, what do you think about talking to so-and-so I've been trying to, you know, find a way in or trying to educate him and you know, he's not really into it, but I think it could benefit him so using certain players to be your soundboard. Mm-hmm. I think is a great strategy. Uh, another one I use, and, and I think it's just fortunate, but unfortunate is you know, using things that happen, whether it's an injury, whether it's an adverse uh, 
experience or something bad that happens to a player and kind of just using that as the motivational piece where, Hey, you know, you had a strain, you had a cramp, you had an X, Y, and Z, you know, this is what we can do. And I think if you want to implement it, we can put together a plan and a thought process. These are the resources we have available to you. What do you think? And at that time, because a lot of these players, if they're not big money players, you know, their, their jobs are on the line. And we see this all the time. Someone gets injured, someone gets hurt, they can't perform. You know, they get thrown on IR, they get cut, take a settlement, and we bring somebody else in, and they're back on on the street yeah. trying to make their way back to a team. So, obviously, our goal is to make sure that we keep the players on our 53 and 10-man practice squad roster as healthy as possible. We'll give them any and everything, but not everybody's going to buy in. But a lot of these guys have been bouncing around from team to team. You know, they know that this could be their only shot, and they have to do any and everything yeah. to keep their position to make their money because this is the only job that they have and probably the only job they really ever want. So using, you know, an injury or something that happened or, you know, didn't happen very well or a bad night of sleep and, you know, maybe it's a sickness and they were throwing up or whatever, just trying to get to the bottom of it and use that as a way in to try to build a little buy-in and get them to follow through with what we want them to do. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice there. Um, um, thank you for that. So, so look, we, we talked a little bit earlier about, or well, I mentioned the term community of practice. You talk about collaboration in your in your article. Um, you know, in your setting, it's a particularly significant community of, of practitioners and coaches, and obviously the players. Um, you know how 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 do you f- or how does the RD fit into that environment? Um, you mentioned, you know, we, we have to, as obsessed as we are with performance nutrition and as important as we feel it is, you, you make a good point and, you know, we need to sober up and just recognize that it is not the most important thing. <laughs> um, it's an important <laughs> part of it, but it's not the only thing. And sometimes you have to learn to step back a bit, you know, um, and recognize there's a lot of things that are going on. In terms of the collaboration, how 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 good is the collaboration and communication and i guess from you, for you as i have found having also been an snc coach has enabled me to to communicate um uh with with those other members of that community in a slightly different way um do, i mean have you found that that's also been useful for you because that is something that you know sports nutritionists tend to just stick to sports nutrition in their training and education and maybe diversifying, for example, taking the NSCA CSCS certification, even if they're not necessarily going to become SNC coaches, it would help them understand and speak the language and that might help in that collaboration environment. So, so having said all that, like, you know, how, how have you felt the collaborative environment and what is the advice you would have to, to collaborate better maybe? Yeah, I think, you know, my current situation, I think it's really amazing. You know, obviously, as a strength and conditioning staff, we meet daily and we communicate hourly, if not, you know, every five to 10 minutes. But we also are very close with our medical staff because, again, you know, it's really us and the players. So as long as we're all on talking on the same page, we understand what's going on, we'll be able to do as much as we can for the athlete. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's an ongoing process. We can always work to communicate better. And that's, that's the biggest part of the collaboration piece is just everybody sharing information because it's not, you know, this is the information I have. I need to keep it to myself. You know, that's not going to help 
the players at the end of the day. And we see things from different perspectives, and I think that that's a really important piece as you were talking about when you're working as a strength coach or as a dietitian, but you have a little bit of background in these other specialties and other fields is you start seeing things from a different vantage point instead of just this narrow focus, you know, performance nutrition, performance nutrition, and you start missing out on what, you know, an SNC might see or what an ATC might see in the same, at the same token, you know, we're not going to be able to get through to every single player on the team. You know, every player is going to have, very different relationships with all the different staff members, whether it's coaches, whether it's trainers, whether it's dietitians, whether it's strength coaches. So if I'm not able to get through to a player, I might ask or see if another staff member who might have better relationship with them to get through to that player and open the lines of communication. Because again, at the end of the day, we're trying to do what's best for them, not what, not what's best for us. Mm. And, you know, I've had conversations with, you know, people like Brett Bartholomew who does a really good job of talking about, you know, the art of coaching, dealing with your athletes. I think we also need to make sure that we're also opening up these lines of communications and understanding perspectives from all the other staff members that we work with. And I think one thing that sports dietitians haven't done really well is ask perspectives from, you know, the medical staff and strength and conditioning staff, because we're still a very young field. We're trying to get where, SNC and sports medicine is now, and obviously we, a lot has happened over the past five, 10 years, but to be able to continue to grow where we need to be, we need to make sure that we're doing as much as we can to not prove our worth, because we all know nutrition is important. No one's going to tell you that it's not important. We have to provide value, and that's a very individual thing that each practitioner has to do. So the way a strength and conditioning coach looks at nutrition is going to be different than the way a trainer looks at nutrition is going to be different than the way a sports dietitian looks at it. And I think having those open conversations where a strength and conditioning coach is like, well, this player needs to gain five pounds or lose five pounds, but he's eating X, X, and X, and he sees, you know, this player who needs to lose weight is not eating properly at meal times, even though they've met with the dietitian and they, you know, get really mad and the strength coach might have a lot of power and influence on the team and might be best friends with the head coach. You know, they might see something negative in the mind's eye and have, you know, preconceived notions about what information the sports dietitian is doing. But the sports dietitian has had a conversation with this player and knows that there's a lot of backstory going on, a lot of mental issues. So, you yeah. know, the way that this person's going to respond is you can't hammer them all, all at once and throw them on this broccoli and brown rice and grilled chicken diet because this person's <laughs> going to set themselves up for failure, yeah. you know? So then it's kind of that give and take where, you know, you have these different hats on different people, but if that isn't communicated amongst both groups, then, you know, you're going to have a perceived notion from one side and then somebody who kind of knows a little bit more because they've had a full assessment on the player. The same thing goes when working with the medical staff too. You know, maybe they have preconceived notions about supplements and hydration and X, Y, and Z instead of, you know, showing them the research or showing them, you know, different things that can be implemented or what other teams are doing that have worked to try it out and test it on the players. And I think that's one piece that can continually evolve and continually happen with teams. Yeah. And I, you know, look, uh, listeners will know because I say this all the time, but you know, we always have to remember that they're not just, they're not just athletes. They're not just in that scenario, American football players. They're also human beings and they have all the issues that humans have, whether it's, you know, food-related anxieties or pressures or, uh, or of course, in it, for you, actually, this is a quick one, actually, uh, scope of practice is worth mentioning because 
you know, um, for example, in our, in our setting, not everyone's an RD. They might be a registered sports nutritionist or registered nutritionist, but there are different scopes of practice. For example, I'm a registered uh, nutritionist and a, and a registered sports nutritionist, but I'm not an RD. Therefore, for me, anything clinical is not within my scope of, of practice. For you, um, you're an RD, obviously, so you, you, you're, you're going to be dealing not just with the performance, uh, recovery, hydration, but you're also, and beyond the wellness, you're also potentially dealing with some of the clinical issues. Just briefly give us an idea of where that might go for you. Yeah, I've, I've had athletes in the past that have been type 1 diabetics. You know, they've presented with, you know, specific injuries that have required, you know, full assessment, diagnosis, intervention, monitoring, evaluations. We write PES statements for them. We've had, you know, ulcerative colitis athletes, Crohn's athletes, you know, celiac athletes, anemic uh, athletes, uh, a whole gamut of different, you know, medical conditions where you do have specific medical nutrition therapy that needs to be addressed first from a health perspective. And then we throw on the performance part of it. And I think, you know, learning that going through our dietetic internships is very important because, you know, some people might think, I just want to be a sports dietitian. Why do I have to go through these clinical rotations? And this is more on the U.S. domestic side where, mm. you know, we, we have to do all of this background information and learn all these different uh, specialties that don't have anything to do with sports or physiology. And then we have to try to gather experience and then get, you know, a graduate degree and try to sit for certs and whatnot. And that's, that's what makes it a little bit uh, distasteful in the minds of others where they, they just want to work with athletes, but they don't want to be in RD because they don't see the benefit of that. But I think, you know, learning how to assess athletes, you know, from the ground up is, is a big part of what we learn in these internships and working with these clinical indicators is important because I'm going to be looking at blood biomarkers. I mean, we've got draws coming up tomorrow morning. So I'm going to be knee deep and looking at every single player that we get a chance to, you know, voluntarily opt into doing it. And I need to come up with, you know, valid, you know, evidence-based solutions to change it. So we might have somebody that has a really high A1C or they have blood glucose issues or there's some other biomarkers, whether it's lipids or, um, you know, specific micronutrient deficiencies that, you know, usually you don't necessarily learn that right off the bat, but this is stuff that we've learned back in our clinical application. Uh, so I think, you know, understanding the benefit of that is only going to make you much more efficient and much more, competent as a practitioner because you're not going to deal with there's never been a, a position i've had that i've had all athletes super healthy and not have anything medically nutritional related that we could address sure no 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 me i definitely mean either although the challenge for me is i can't deal with some of those issues uh so i have to refer and then therein lies the importance of a referral network and or working with the team doctor and then that you know for me that's often been the case um, but that's for another another podcast on another time. But in in that in the vein of that conversation, though, some you know a challenge to the sports nutritionist to the RD is trying to do everything. And you know we acquire all of these, as I refer to it, tools in a toolbox. All of these strategies. There's all this science. Um, how you know how do you look at that? Uh, you know, and, and for you you know, what filter do you use or have you used to differentiate, you know, the useful from not useful strategies, the, the, the BS 
from you know the experimental stuff that has some you know potential but of course you know you have to decide are you or are you not going to use these tools in that environment um you know that because we are in an emerging growing field our tool what's available to us as practitioners including tests and assessments and technologies for assessing you know uh, all sorts of things um you know from muscle glycogen levels to you know there are alternative tests out there that um that are obviously incredibly dubious to gray areas of genetic testing and so on i mean what you know you you you're obviously exposed to this like everyone else like how do you approach that and how do you prioritize that um into your evidence based practice yeah i th- i think it's important for practitioners to become very open minded i mean doesn't if somebody reaches out to you and says they have a new technology you know, you obviously don't want to just hang up with the phone on them or be like, oh, whatever, this guy's an idiot or this is BS because, again, you know, who knows, in five, ten years, it could be the greatest thing in the world and you said no to it when you had the opportunity to test it out. So I think a lot of times we fall into, you know, this, this fatal flaw of just going by groupthink. Now, if it isn't in a position stand, if it isn't in a review, if these teams aren't using it, then I can't use it because mm-hmm. I'm going to be looked at as an idiot. But I think that that can actually be really detrimental to the growth of practitioners and also the field in general, where we say these same sayings and phrases all the time to the point where it becomes a little bit numb. Yeah. But, you know, it, uh, people do reach out to us on a daily basis. Everybody's got this new, you know, assessment technology method, this new, you know, software database monitoring system, X, Y, and Z, this new body composition measurement tool. Uh, you know, like you said, <laughs> testing muscle glycogen through ultrasound, even though I think uh, some people out in Europe have just debunked that uh, with a recent paper. Uh, yeah, I read uh, it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've tested it out, but I haven't invested or bought into it. So luckily I didn't mm-hmm. fall into that uh, rabbit hole. But I think it's it's open. It's very important to be open-minded and you know do your own research. I think a lot of times we always ask somebody else, be like, hey, this company reached out to me. What do you guys think? Instead of asking other people what they think, you know, why don't we just go ahead and do our own research or even bring it in and demo it on ourselves? And that's what myself and our head strength coach will do quite often is if we hear about something that has the potential to provide our athletes a benefit and it's not astronomical in cost and then we look at the safety and efficacy of it and if it's very low maintenance and not that much of a risk to our players, you know, we'll test it out for ourselves or reach out to this company and be like, let us have it for two weeks, four weeks, whatever, two months. And if we ourselves can follow the protocols and feel a benefit from it, then we'll, we'll start bringing it up to our decision makers in terms of who approves large purchases in our facility and in our um, organization to say, you know, we've tested it out. We feel like it'd be a benefit to our players because, this is what we're seeing in our players as problems X, Y, and Z. And this is how this piece of equipment or this technology or this methodology can help out and improve us in X, Y, and Z. This is how much it's going to cost. This is how we're going to implement it. This is the time frame, And this is how we're going to introduce it to the players. And then we go from there. Yeah. So a lot of times it's just important to just do some research and background on the team. What are the claims they're making? Do a lit review. So many times people are asking for, you know, somebody else to do the work for them. And I think that's a big downfall currently in our field. You know, people aren't willing to do the work or research themselves. You know, I try to be very active on social media just in terms of 
putting content out there that, you know, either pops up into my head or I've experienced in person that's unique to certain situations that I've encountered or, you know, things that I've read going down a rabbit hole, I'll put it out there, but like, I never knew this 10 years ago. I never knew this five years ago, but I think this is incredible information and somebody might be able to take it and apply it to their practice or it might, you know, turn on a light bulb for them. But a lot of times people are like, like, Oh, where's the research? Can you prove it? I'm like, well, you disprove it first. Yeah. Instead of actually just going and doing their own research themselves. And yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what I would say if somebody approaches you with a new supplement or a new, you know, diet prescription or a technology that you can try out. Just don't, don't say no at first without actually just looking at it yourself with an objective point of view. Of course. Yeah. Well, that, that segues into something I, I want to get into as a final sort of area, but uh, just on that point, you know, I, I, it drives me nuts when people are just constantly going on about, Oh, well, you know, it's research based, it's evidence based, but you know, it's not just about the strength, you know, of, of, it's not just about how high quality the research is and does it fit into the hierarchy of science or evidence it, you've also got to look at the, the strength of the evidence and perhaps take that further to the relevance of that evidence, because there's plenty of science out there. A lot of it's pretty bad, to be fair. Um, <laughs> it gets published. That doesn't make it good science. But even a lot of that really fantastic science, that fantastic research, might be completely irrelevant um, in your practice, in the context in which you are currently trying to make a decision. So that segues into what I want to talk about lastly is the point that a practitioner is a is a rational agent, an individual, a critical thinking, you know, person who's having to take all this evidence, all this information, the circumstances at the time, you know, literally in the trenches with stuff going on. And, you know, you can't necessarily apply the textbook scenario in, into practice. But it still comes back to the point that you, to be an effective practitioner means you've got to be able to make good decisions or the, you know, sensible decisions to give good quality, well thought out advice to give well chosen strategies. What, in your opinion, does it take to be able to do that? Um, and I don't just mean ticking a box of I've got a piece of paper that's framed on a wall. That's obviously part of it. Um, but in in that as well, like you know, what are the minimum competencies you feel the minimum credentials qualifications experience even to 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 be able to do the type of job that you're now doing which for many would be their dream job you know i get a lot of people contacting me who you know like want to know how how can they get work in elite sport how can they work for you know a professional sports team um you know my answer will probably mimic what yours is so i'll, I'll let you answer that question but but there's obviously a journey there but you know you need to make some decisions about what you actually do and 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 what you don't skip um in order to get to get you into that right place what would your advice to the listeners be in that regard yeah i'll, I'll say well two things on that you either get a job in pro sports one if you're just lucky you know and i think that's one of those things where we're still trying to fill 
needed positions in all of the professional sports here domestically. I mean, we've, we've had very good integration into the NFL. We're slowly breaking our way into the NBA, the NHL, MLS, MLB. Uh, you've got great people working with the UFC, the Olympic Training Center. But sometimes, you know, the same thing it is with coaching. Some coaches will work their entire lives and never even get a chance at a decent collegiate position, much less a professional position. Mm. It all boils down to, you know, yeah, you need to make sure you have a good background in nutrition and exercise physiology. You have to have a very open mind. You have to understand athletes. You have to be able to relate to them. You have to be likable. You have to be able to know when to push an agenda on an athlete and when to just relax and let them be because you and I both know 90% of the time they're not following what they should be doing regularly. And there's always going to be some level of, you know, that's them. You got to understand when they're in the building for the most part, they're going to be pretty compliant, but when they're out of the building, some of these guys habits are atrocious and I've, you know, you have the chance to learn that over 10 years and now nothing shocks me, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been freaked out by what some of these guys do. Yeah. Like what behaviors they participate in, how much they eat and drink. It's ridiculous. People think these professional athletes are, you know, saints when it comes to their body. And like they're worse off than most people are really. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're not lucky and you don't have a connection with somebody right off the bat, you know, sometimes that will happen. I will say don't fixate on a professional level job. If you're an entry level practitioner, that's the worst thing in the world to do. Yeah. Because when I first got into this field, you know, I, I really fa nutrition fascinated me when I was in high school because I loved playing sports when I was growing up. I, like many kids, I started getting more into video games because that was when, you know, the PlayStation 1 came out and I was like eight years old. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. So I stopped playing sports. I got fat, became a little chunker. And then high school comes around, you know, these very uh, influential times in a kid's life where obviously you want to be popular, you want to be well-liked, but if you're different and you're not, you know, the jocker, one of the cool kids, then life sucks. So I decided, you know, because of a, a long history of family health issues, I didn't want to end up like, you know, some of my uncles that had strokes and heart attacks and X, Y, and Z that I had to do something. So I decided I'm going to start eating better and get back into shape and was able to transform my body. I'm like, this is great. You know, I'm now, then I started playing sports again and enjoyed the rest of my high school. I'm like, wow, I can do this myself, having known nothing about nutrition except for reading like these flex magazines and wanting to look like a bodybuilder. And maybe I could do that as a career to help people. So that's when I initially got in. I figured I was going to get a degree in nutrition, become a dietitian, get a personal training certification, and work in a gym. To me, that was the holy grail. And then going through my dietetic internship, started learning about different performance training centers. And then my next dream was I wanted to work at athlete performance around athletes in a similar type setting. And then applied a million times, didn't get any response back. You know, so I just, like, what was available in front of me? Well, I have this credential. I'm just giving, you know, free talks and X, Y, and Z to teams and training centers around my area, but there's not a full-time job available. Someone said, well, maybe you should go back to school and get a degree in kinesiology because, if you can't get your foot in the door as a sports dietitian, you know, maybe you can be a little bit more marketable if you're a strength coach as well. So I'm like, oh, that's good advice. Went back to school, grad taught at Kansas State, you know, did a study, wrote it up, you know, years, years later, it finally got published. 
<laughs> as you know how that goes yeah. and started working with the men's basketball team there outside of just doing some group fitness coaching and coaching weightlifting. So that's when my coaching bug really started to get, I got the itch for it because somebody had watched the session that I was putting on. They're like, you make a really good coach. I'm like, really? But luckily for me, you know, I had the opportunity to work with the K-State men's basketball team for a couple of years. And then that staff got turned over and my in with the team was gone. And that's about the time where a lot of full-time positions were opening up at a lot of different universities across the country. So I interviewed at a bunch, uh, had some good interviews, had some bad interviews, ended up getting a job at Michigan State, a place that had mainly contracted with sports dietitians. So I wasn't full-time at the time. I was working, you know, 10 to 20 hours max, but also you know, teaching on the side, doing research, and also training kids in the, in the area, you know, kind of holistically with Joey. So I was diversifying myself, not just putting myself in this tunnel vision, thinking about sports nutrition, sports nutrition. No, I was doing research. I was teaching. I was staying on top of everything research-wise and also working with the athletes there. So I had my hand in a lot of different things. You know, that worked out really well. We had some good seasons. They didn't necessarily want to expand the program in the way that I wanted to. So basically my time there progressing had kind of come at a standstill. So I figured I think it's time for me to see if there are any other opportunities because I wanted to direct my own program from the ground up. And that's when an opening at the University of Oregon came about and was fortunate enough to get the job there. So going from one perspective to another, you know, now I'm in charge of this full-on department in a very progressive uh, school that has invested heavily in sports science and nutrition and medicine and performance. So now I have all these responsibilities. It's a whole whole gamut of, you know, I have to come up with everything for all these teams. I have to staff it accordingly. I'm in charge of a budget. I have to learn about sports science because it's my first introduction to it. I got to work really closely with the medical staff because in Michigan State, I work really closely with the strength conditioning staff. So now I'm continuing to diversify my skill set. You know, although I wasn't doing any coaching, there's still a lot of coaching that's involved in terms of dealing with athletes one-on-one when you're teaching them nutrition and performance and all these different resources and learning modules that you want to get across to them. So I guess long story short, you know, after three really good years there, you know, an opening came about here with the Giants when my supervisor and our strength coach took over the year before and he wanted the sports dietitian full time but also a strength coach too. So luckily I had that skill set because I had done coaching in Kansas State. I had coached a little bit at Michigan State. And I had, you know, it was basically an RD, CSDS, and that's what he wanted. And that's really the only reason that I got the job was because I had all those other opportunities laid out in front of me. But, you know, what I would say to young practitioners and young coaches is don't try to swing for the fences right out the gate. Because if I hadn't learned everything that I had learned at every single step, it wouldn't have allowed me to grow in every successive step to the point of where I'm at now, where I'm obviously continuing to grow every single day because, you know, we get new players on the weekly. It's it's a league that's constantly evolving and changing, and we're having to learn on the fly. And, you know, I never even thought about the NFL. People were like, oh, it's a dream job. You must have been thinking about the NFL when you first started. I was like, I had no clue. <laughs> I had no clue. I had zero, zero clue I would ever end up here. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why I was fortunate enough to be able to progress is that I didn't set myself up for disappointment along the way. Yeah. That's that's an awesome overview of your journey and one um, I'm sure many either 
um, have had similar experiences and or now you know have an idea as to as to how their their path may you know may open up for them and I think that's that's just really great uh, logical and practical advice that you've given us listen um we could talk for ages about this stuff obviously and um i'm going to encourage the listeners to read your article um i know you've also done one recently on caffeine which was a good read as well i read that um a couple of days ago uh again in the nsca coach um and um if folks want to sort of follow you and your path and what you're up to. You mentioned social media. Are you pretty active on things like Twitter? Yeah, I'm definitely uh, more active on Twitter and LinkedIn than I am on Instagram. Still trying to figure out the best way to <laughs> increase followers oh, and post good content on Instagram, but decently active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Cool. Yeah, well, I'll, 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 when I post this show, I'll tie you into those so that uh, people can follow you and connect with you and follow um you know your advice and teachings in the in in the years to come please do keep contributing to the field as you have done it's been fascinating to read that stuff it's also been fascinating to talk to you um so i really appreciate your time oh thank you for having me and i'll definitely keep churning out these articles because i know at least one person's going to read them yeah even <laughs> if it's just you yeah no it's 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 awesome um well look uh that brings us to the end of this episode i'm sure you all as i have done have found that really interesting um and fascinating and thought inspiring um there are plenty more episodes to catch up with um all the way from science to practice um in the 119 120 episodes i can't believe it um so you can get that at guruperformance.com but also the podcast specific website at we do science.com um but for all of you that are into learning more about uh, applying science to practice in the area of sport and exercise nutrition of course that's what we focus on at the guru performance institute um and you can learn about our uh, professional postgraduate level training programs in sport and exercise nutrition at guruperforms.com. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all uh, very soon. Thanks for listening.